My guest today on Mission Impact is Dr. Orletta Caldwell. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Orlena and I talk about her work with African-American-led community-based organizations. We explore the specific challenges these organizations face, what folks need to be aware of when they shift from being a project to being an organization, and why it's so key to understand that even as a founder, you do not own your nonprofit. Well, welcome, Orletta. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thank you. So I'd like to get started with a question around um, what drew you to the work that you do? What, what motivates you and what would you say is your why? My why? Um, I grew up in a Black church, um, saved a community, helped people that, you know, worse off than you. I have been truly blessed in my life and I've just always wanted to give back and that's my why and one of my whys is funny I'm not interested in being in the front so much like you know president of this or that but it was always more to provide resources so people can do what they do better so that's been my why for a long time yeah I love that I I also am more of a behind the scenes person so I when I describe my work I describe it as um I help the helpers. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 multiple steps away from whatever help is being being done, but but uh helping them yeah. do their work better is where I can then see, you know, see impact. Right. Yeah. And I, and that's always been my thing. It's like putting those tools together, coming up with a process, but making other people be able to do their jobs better. So that's yeah, that's been the why. So you and I both do capacity building with nonprofits, but you really focus in specifically on um, African-American-led organizations. Um, what are what are some of the specific opportunities or, or challenges that those organizations face? Well, traditionally, in the research shows, they always say they're smaller, um, less access to money. And I had one guy who was at his um, clinic, <laughs> his workshop, and he said, we're not grassroots, we're mud roots. We don't even <laughs> have enough money to get grass. And that's what I've seen so many times. And it's always because they they may not know what's going on. And I've always want to be this bridge to say, it, it, it even led me to go for my PhD to find out what's going on in the nonprofit sector and take it back to my people, my community. And that's why I've focused on them. I'll work with anybody, but I've focused on African-American nonprofits for that reason. And what are some of the things in terms of building that bridge um, that you're helping uh, folks gain connection to or access to? A lot of it is compliance issues, filling out that paperwork, um, knowing that that paperwork should be filled out. And it's not so much um, if you don't fill out the paperwork, bad things are going to happen. Sometimes I'm like, because you don't have this proper paperwork, 
the good things can't happen. You don't have access to the grants and the funding that you can have. Um, you miss out on little things, you know, people don't check your credibility. So I'm really into helping nonprofits stay compliant and making sure you understand the rules, filling out the charitable solicitation paper, you know, don't let uh, a $275 fee stop you from getting a 501c3 that can open up opportunities for your mission, that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I can imagine folks might start something and it's really more of an informal project or initiative mm -hmm. and, and they may, may not be aware that, uh, you know, of those steps. So what are some of the steps that people need to be aware of? And this certainly in the U.S. context of, you know, to shift right. from just a, a passion project or uh, to to really becoming an organization. Well, one thing, I live in Michigan, and I'm like, just get your, you know, they don't really understand, once you get your articles of incorporation from the state of Michigan, you know, for example, you're truly a nonprofit uh, corporation, and now we can work on your tax exemption status, which you have 24 months to do, and they don't really understand that, so they're paying out of their pocket, um, a lot of them, again, when they file for the incorporation papers, they're incorporated. They don't realize they have 24 months where it can still be considered tax deductible donations to them because you have the intent to um, file for your tax exemption. And so they lose 24 months of money they could be receiving, you know, because they're like, well, we're not. They don't think they're a real nonprofit until they get the 501c3. So it's those little, you know, niggling things like that. And then my favorite one is the founder syndrome. <laughs> they think I found it. This was my dream. I thought of it. I run it. And when I come into a class and say, we don't run, you know, you don't own nonprofits. That's not how it's set up. That that those are interesting conversations. So it's those little and it's those little things. Having a real budget, <laughs> you know, planning for that, having a board that's going to actually help you and not just grab your family and your friends. So those are the kind of things and it's the small things, but it keeps them from having the impact that they can have. I don't know. I don't know that they're that small necessarily. Um, yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, misconception about this notion of being a corporation, but that the, a nonprofit can't be owned by an individual. Right. Can you say more about that? Well, okay. I always tell them that the nonprofit system, what I do with my, I teach a nonprofit management series course I wrote. And one of the things that every time somebody wants to say, or get into that groove of I'm the owner of my nonprofit. And it's like, uh, no, you are you doing this on behalf of society? The reason the nonprofit sector was set up is you're supposed to be you're doing it on behalf of society. And if you're doing it on behalf of society as a reward, we exempt you from your your corporate income taxes. But that since you're doing it, it's a higher le level of standard. We have to make sure that you're doing that and you're not what we call, you know, getting personal gain from the quote unquote profits. And so we, I'm saying I always try to pull my students back to why are you doing this? Because you can be nice and not run start a nonprofit corporations. And I always tell them that, too. So if you're doing this, you're doing it on behalf of society as such. There's certain rules. And one thing is you don't own a nonprofit. And actually, the board 
is the stewards on behalf of society to make sure that you're running that organization correctly. And that's how I put it to them so they can understand, you know, foundationally what we're trying to do here. And we're not saying you got to go broke. We're just saying, you know, you can't, you know, take those funds and have a good party. Right. So it's the whole notion of being a fiduciary for the board or being a steward of those resources on behalf uh, of, of the larger society community, right. um, which I think, yeah, is that kind of uh, gap where people not may not realize um you know, right. the intent and the purpose of the the tax exemption. Right. And there's a little, so many misconceptions about the nonprofit sector. So I just, I just chuckle and smile and it's like, okay, we're going to get through this. I mean, I had one student, she, she cracked me up. She's one of my best students and she's getting grants and everything now, but she was just like, but this is my concept. What do you mean my board can let me go? Oh, yes, the board runs it. That's the way it is set up. So a lot of that, and it's a lot of that information. If they, if a person doesn't know it, they just don't, be, they don't run the organization correctly. And so I really try to work with that. And you talked about having a real board, not just pulling your friends and family. Can you say a little bit more about that as people are getting started? Yeah, what typically they do, because this is what I always heard. Can I put my husband, my daughter, and my cousin in? And I'm like, okay, you can legally, yes. However, you know, the board is the people that are supposed to be sold out for your mission. They are the ones, so when you out of organization maybe having money issues, it's the board that's supposed to help you get that money. So I'm like, why don't you use those purposes, find somebody who has connections, find somebody who has money, um, find somebody who has expertise, maybe some accounting expertise or different things that you need to run, you know, to increase the impact of your nonprofit. And what a lot of people do when you get your friends, that's what you got your friends. And then again, you feel like you're the founder because you're pulling the whole organization on your back instead of getting some people that can support you and grow the mission. Everything should focus on the mission. And I, that's why I don't like nonprofit, that term so much. I always prefer mission-based because everything we should do emanates from the mission. And you should have boards that's going to push and impact that mission together with you and not you got people because you got to fill it out on a form. Yeah. And that whole question of like, who are you pulling in? I mean, certainly people are going to start with their network, but thinking a little more strategically about, um, you know, what skills do we need? What competency, what social capital do we need to move this right. mission forward? I was working with an organization once where it was essentially, you know, one person was running the organization and the board was made up of a group of college friends. Yeah. And I think it was fine for the first couple of years. They were excited. But over time, um, you know, people became disengaged. And because they had friendships, the, the you know, oftentimes groups are already conflict averse, but it right. made it even more so because they were right. not going to just lose. Um, they were they were putting the um, not wanting to harm their relationships as friends right. over what they Didn't needed to hash out as a board and so they really got stuck um mm -hmm. and so you know it may be easy it seems easy but um it also makes it hard to bring in new people 
Right. Uh, because if you have a subset that really know each other and they've known each other for the last 15 years or whatever, um, to be able to come in as a new person, how long are you going to last if you don't right. feel like you're actually part of the group? So coming on as a board member for the organization versus I'm doing you this, uh, doing you a favor uh, because you've started this thing, it has a really different motivation. It, it does. And again, it takes the focus, uh, it puts the focus on the founder and not the mission. Right. And I think that's the key thing. When you really, I find when you really think about what is this mission, what are we trying to do here? That focus, if you focus on that, it just changes how you make decisions. What are some ways that you found um, seeing people be successful about getting out kind of beyond just their friends and family to build a, a board that that is really going to move the mission forward? Well, I I even recommend to people to who who's volunteering with you that really is into what you're doing. Those are potential board members. And then I said, you can even put on like Indeed.com or even some of the free, you know, I know in Detroit, we have like a board, I can't, my brain is internet like listing or something. So if you're looking for a board member, you can put it on there. And I said, it's fine to find a stranger. You may find a stranger that's so, that's so much more into your mission than your friend. So I, you know, I say, see those people that's that's donating to you and they don't you you barely know what you're talking about yourself, but they're helping you. That's a good board member. That's somebody who's really into what you're doing and really into you too, if you want, you know, if you want to have a good relationship with them. So those are the kind of things I say, find people who's into the mission. And right, they're there them. for yeah. you know the purpose versus right. just the person. Right. Yeah, we're, I know we're a very individual driven sector, but, you know, I think we do need to look at what's the mission. So those are the kind of things I think about, like, who are good board members. Yeah. So you, uh, you're you in the process right now of working on a book um, about the history of uh, African-American organizations can you give us a few? I know it's not finished yet. You're probably, who knows how far, I'm not sure how far <laughs> along you are, but any any kind of interesting things that you're researching right now that are coming up and bubbling up? Yeah, um, this is my dissertation. I got my PhD in uh, 20, I earned it in 2021. I was looking Congratulations. at- Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was looking at what keeps, Af what do African-American leaders do to be you know, to sustain successful nonprofits. But part of my literature reviews when my chair said, I need you to write on the history of African-American nonprofit history. And here I am, I study this stuff and all this, and I kind of scoffed. And I remember reading that memo and thinking, what, what history? And it was just ridiculous, but that was the first thing I thought. And it was even worse because I grew up African Methodist Episcopal. That's the um, first African-American church over, I think they've been since 1787. So I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, the Free African Society. So as I was looking into this and I was writing this literature review, there was an organization, I think it was the Massachusetts um, Negro Bureau. And I, I can't think that, I wish I can remember the name, but I know they started, 
1693. And that was, you know, over 400 years ago. And they've been running, they were running, their mission was to help their enslaved um, brothers and sisters. And that's when I'm like, we've been doing this. We've been doing this um, while enslaved. We've, you know, through reconstruction, civil rights or whatever. And so I talk, I'm talking to a book editor right now. We're hashing out what we're doing. And he wants to call it the invisible history of African-American nonprofits. And it's been like, for me, it's been like a faith journey too. It's sobering, but hearing, reading these stories and researching stories of these people who could have just said, forget it, you know, you're on your own. And they always came back for their community and ran these organizations. And some of these organizations are still in existence because I'm looking from like 1693 through civil rights. And that's where the book is going to span from. And that whole entire time, there's been pivotal figures and organizations that kept, you know, doing the work to keep the community going. That's amazing to be able to really bring that history to the fore and that that the length of that legacy, that it's always yes. been there. It's always been there. It may not have been celebrated, but it's always been there. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I'll look forward to when it when it gets published. But you also <laughs> talked about um with your with your work with your PhD around what makes um African American leaders successful. So what were some of the things that really helped people move forward. Bottom Once line, they got beyond some of the stuff that you're talking about of that yeah. and getting beyond the basics of really being able to succeed. Yeah. Um, beyond bottom line, they persist. I mean, mm. even with the lack of money, the smaller ones, but one thing I found out, cause I, what I want to make sure, you know, academically, you know, because they always, it was always like some of the research tried to say is we didn't have to particular skills intrinsically as, you know, Black people. And I'm like, okay, I know that's not true. That's stupid. So let me, so I want to find out what do successful nonprofit leaders across the sector do? Well, they get training, they build um, boards, they build a team around them. Um, and then I looked at what these African-Americans was doing. I had interviews. They did the same thing. And not only did they do the foundational things they knew need to do to be successful, you know, build better boards, build a team. But because of one um, interview in particular, she was telling me how she got a grant from the state and the program manager didn't think they were worthy of it because it was a black organization. So how much harder she worked to make sure that all I's were dot, T's were crossed and everything was done correctly so that they couldn't say this organization couldn't do it because that's what she had, you know, had to deal with. Um, they knock on doors hard more, you know, they have, you know, because we, that's one of the things we don't have access to the boards and foundations, like our counterparts. So they knock on more doors. They, you know, I always tell my students, you have to go to functions and you just got to talk and talk and talk and talk, you know, more, and you have to do more. Um, the one thing I did find there is an innate loneliness mm. because often the community that you're fighting to serve don't understand what you're doing and they'll fight against you while you're fighting for them plus they they are being bridges 
they can't just do their job. They have to be a bridge, you know, on behalf of a, you know, a whole group or a community in a lot of times to get into those stores to get the money. So it's a, they have a heavier lift, but they do persist. All nine of them persist. And I, I interviewed nine people. The one thing I found was this was their second career. Mm. <laughs> All of them, it was like, so you can just retire and go home and say, forget this, which is always, it's been a trade in the nonprofit field, but none of them came in as nonprofit leaders or anything like that. They just saw a need. And I looked at um, what we call social contract, social, I think it's contract theory, Bandura. And it was something innate in them from their community that they learned that I have to give of myself. And so that was a trait I saw over and over. I have to give of myself, not of my wealth. Um, Black philanthropy is not given of our wealth, it's given what we have, but given of my time and talent and treasure to help the community as a collective. So you, I saw a lot of that too from that study. Yeah, there's a organization that I'm aware of here in Maryland that I think is it has uh, goals to go national, but a black uh, ED network, black mm -hmm. executive director network for um, African American uh, nonprofit leaders, executive yeah. directors, and I think you know anytime you're a leader of an organization, it can be lonely, but those mm -hmm. particular challenges. Um, and to be able to come together and compare notes and and help each other uh, right. persist when you know you get to the point where you're like oh I cannot knock on another door I cannot <laughs> do my little elevator pitch one more time uh, colleagues can kind of encourage you to step get back up and and uh, move you know keep yeah. going yeah I mean because with us too we get a lot of microaggressions mm -hmm. yeah and you just go like oh. so it's it's that small thing when you go like, uh, and they go like, yeah. And you just kind of talk, you know, you don't even say a word and it's like, okay, get back out there. And, and, and that's encouraging. So, yeah. Cause it, it, it's a, I, and a lot of them are tired. I can, I can see it. It's like, oh my God, you know? So, but they just, they keep doing it. I have this one woman, she runs a garden program and she's teaching sixth graders. She should be sitting in her rocking chair having a good time. And she's trying to teach <laughs> sixth graders that I don't even want to be with to show them how to plant a garden so they can sustain their lives in this neighborhood that has a food desert. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, being able to bring the whole career experience to the sector, I think it, but then there is that gap, right, of mm -hmm. um, not knowing all the nuts and bolts about this particular sector, how things work, um, what's right. different about being uh, in a for-profit business versus a nonprofit corporation, all those kinds of things. Yes. Uh, so appreciate that you're you're addressing those items. Yeah, that, that was my real goal. I mean, what the, the great one of the greatest things I feel I've accomplished is, is this is this just a seven week course I teach at a community college, a local community college, but now I can do it virtually too. And it just in seven weeks, we hit on every you know aspect of what it's going to take to manage a nonprofit. So it's not like you're going to be, you know, I'm proficient now I've got it. But they come out with a one to two page blueprint for their organization. And so I've taught the class enough now that I've had students that use that blueprint. So now I have data, you know, 
we love data. I have yep. data to show that I know what I'm talking about. And if you put a good effort into this, you can get your nonprofit running and be compliant. And, you know, some two of them have gotten grants and working on programs. And I love that it's just a one one to two page roadmap, you know. Yeah. You know, keep, keep it simple. Keep it moving. Right. Yes. Um, that And that was my thing. And when they do their presentation at the end, I only give them 15 minutes. I'm like, if you can't tell me in 15 minutes what you want to do, you don't know what you want to do. And they get frustrated, but it's like, no, you only need 15 minutes to tell me what you're going to do. Right. <laughs> That's all you need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other things that you found uh, in your studies kind of beyond persistence? What were some other things that stood out? It, for me, um, the difference between white philanthropy and black philanthropy, I, I did the presentation I, at my job at TechSoup. And, I, you know, we were asked, they were asking me questions and how we can get African-Americans, you know, more leadership and stuff. And I was like, okay. And for somehow we got into this conversation about, you know, philanthropy in general. And I said, you have to understand why philanthropy, and I don't want to be critical, but basically it was a bunch of robber barons that, you know, raped and pillaged the land and, you know, gathered their resources, got rich, very wealthy, had to clean their past, and now they give up their wealth. And then their spouses had some jobs, they had something to do. I said, versus black philanthropy was we, you know, we didn't have a massive wealth, you know, we gave of what we had, washerwomen, janitors, porters, you know, gave of what they had, and we gave it to us to collective. And the one example I was used, I used to run Camp Baber, that was the AME Church's uh, camp. The way that camp was able to be purchased was one of the members, a lady, put a second mortgage on her home for $16,000 back in the um, 40s. And that's how the AME Church got that camp. So obviously it wasn't, she wasn't wealthy, she mortgaged her home. And so you can see the disconnect and the difference between how, when we look at philanthropy, a lot of times our um, organizations is to keep, literally keep our communities alive and fed. Like the one woman I said, um, Detroit is getting better, but they, we have some food deserts. And she started a community garden and she lives in a neighborhood, actually this neighborhood I grew up in, and it's the the land time and people forgotten, but she's determined not to forget them. And so they're not, they don't have this um, proclivity to community organizing. She makes them, you know, she actually runs mimeographs almost and go up and down the street and make people show up for block club meetings. And she's out there in the summer with sixth graders when she should be at home, you know, drinking lemonade, pushing people to keep their properties up and that kind of stuff. So that was the thing I learned. It was just as it's a life or death situation. One of my students was taking money out of her pocket to feed her neighborhood. So now I've taught her how to get a domain and she's got all her paperwork now so she can have somebody help pay for this because she's literally feeding the children in her neighborhood during the summers. And then on holidays, she does neighborhood dinners. Mm. So that's the kind of, those are the differences in the things that they're doing. And they do it on very little. Like when he, um, the guy who worked for IOB, it, when he said mud roots, it really is. I mean, they, 
they're taking so much that mustard seed of faith and just pushing it. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. You can download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. And we're back. Well, thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. At the end of each episode, I ask a, 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 an ice, a random icebreaker question from mm-hmm. um, a box of uh, cards that I have to ask some questions. So what would you say is um, an interesting tradition that your family has? Tradition. Interesting. Oh, or unique, my or... daughter and I. Oh, my daughter and I, every time my daughter is alumni at Michigan State University, uh, go green. Um, We go when they play Northwestern in Chicago, we've for the last five or six years, we always go to that game. Even no matter how cold, how hot, whatever, no matter if Spartans are doing well or not, we always go to that game. We spend a weekend in Chicago and we go to the game and we sing the fight song on the L train with the rest of the things and we act very obnoxious. <laughs> so it's just something we, and it's like every other year, it's like, well, they're playing Northwestern again. Okay. <laughs> and we go. Yeah. Awesome. So what's, what are you excited about? What's coming up for you? What's emerging in the work that you're doing? Well, the book is coming together and it's so funny. Um, imposter syndrome, when a book editor is like taking you seriously, he's talking about, I'm like, oh, so this is actually good. So I'm excited <laughs> about, <laughs> about that. Um, and like I said, I like to be in the background, but I am being considered for ED for a role. So I'm, a, but it's, it kind of impacts everything I've ever done in my life. So the mission is totally what I'm into. So let me see if I'm ready to go to the front again. But those are, that's the kind of things I'm excited about. And my daughter moved back to Detroit. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, she's my only, so. (laughs) Yep, I've got an only daughter too, but she's trying to train right away, so. Oh, good. Okay, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you on the podcast. And I definitely, once once the book is out, we'll have to have you back and have another conversation about that history. I'm definitely interested to learn more. Okay, great. Yeah, I love to talk about it. You can see I'm, I love, it's just been, it's been a life-changing thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciated Orletta's reminder that no one owns a nonprofit organization. This is a basic concept, but because both for-profits and nonprofits in the organ- in the U.S. are organized as corporations, it's easy to confuse the two. For nonprofit corporations, everyone involved, especially the board, is stewarding the resources for the good of the community. The mission or purpose of the organization that has a public benefit is why the organization is given certain privileges tax exemption, for example, or the ability for donations to be tax deductible. I also appreciated her tip for founders to get out beyond their friends and family as they recruit board members. Those folks might be easy to get involved, 
But do they really want to be part of your organization to support the mission or to support you? Board members need to be recruited for their support of the mission and what time, talent, or treasure they are going to bring to help you move your mission forward. I also can't wait until Orletta's book on the history of African-American nonprofits and philanthropy comes out. I think it will open a lot of eyes to a history that has always been there, but hasn't been fully told. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time that you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Dr. Orletta Caldwell, her full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Cindy Riviera Grazer at 100 Ninjas for her production support. If you enjoyed it, I'd love it if you would share it with a colleague or friend. We appreciate you helping us get the word out. And until next time, thank you for everything that you do to contribute and make an impact.